0: I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are Keeping Democracy Alive, and we have a special show for you today. January 6th was one of those hopefully rarest of days in American history, like Pearl Harbor Day and September 11th. No one will ever forget the horror of that day. Though lots has been already written, there's so much packed into that ugly, murderous uprising that demands analysis and understanding. On today's Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll look at it from two distinct angles. Our first discussion is with Robert Mirapol, whose essay, The Capitol Rioters Had a Lot in Common with the Lynch Mob, was published in Time Magazine. And on part two, our guest is history professor Robert Schneider, who calls January 6th a day of populist transgression, in which he says, unlike other uprisings, it was not really for any cause, but instead was about Trumpists just smashing things. First up is Robert Mirapole. His dad wrote the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, and it's back. Tragically. Now, you know the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit. It was and is about lynching in America. It was written and performed long ago by Billie Holiday, and it's back in more ways than one. Having just watched the new movie on Hulu, The United States vs. Billie Holiday, at the end, Holiday says your grandkids will be singing Strange Fruit. And tragically, she's right. And it's not only back because of the popular movie, but also because of January 6th. To many people, that looked like a lynch mob. And our guest today, Robert Mirapol, knows a bit about lynch mobs. And that song, it was his father, Abe Mirapole, who wrote the deeply troubling song Strange Fruit about lynching that Billie Holiday so famously and determinedly perform, our guest's article, "The Capital Rioters," had a lot in common with a lynch mob. First appeared in Time magazine, and please be sure to listen to the lyrics that will play at the end that our guest father wrote. And the version I'm going to play is from that new movie with Andre Day. Very good version. Well, thanks for being with us, Robert Maripol. Once again, since that day, January 6, will surely live in infamy a lot of ink has been put to paper about what happened and what it means for American politics and justice. And among many interpretations, I don't think recognizing aspects of a lynch mob was all that common for January 6th. The the then president clearly lit the spark, intentionally setting off the violent attack on the foundation of America. What about that day did you see that reminded you of a lynch mob?
1: Well, Thank you for having me, Bird. And I, and I, I want to say that, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the piece that I did was because it didn't seem that anybody else was saying this, that when you, you know, when you have a crowd that is juiced up to do something and they're not only going down to the Capitol to uh, stop the, the certification of the election, They're bringing equipment with them to buy, you know, uh, hand ties, uh, weapons. Uh, They're bringing equipment with them to attack and uh, the members of Congress who they don't like, who are doing this, the the senators and representatives. And they erect a scaffold on on the Capitol grounds. They have a noose there. They're 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 bursting in to find people and grab them. And uh, it's 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 exactly what a lynch mob would do. Yep. Uh, So, you know, uh, and that's and it's also uh, the other is the mental uh, the mental processes Mm. beneath the mob, which is that we're acting to institute justice that what we're doing is just a wrong has been done and we're going to correct it, mm. uh, by, and that's exactly the way wow. they, that lynching was justified. Okay. These, these, uh, black criminals are, are, mm. you know, we cannot allow them in our midst and we're going to show them what we do if they step at a line. Mm. And that's, uh, so, the sort of psychology of it, uh, the, the, the imagery of it, the, uh, the equipment they had, it, it was so obvious to me that in some ways it kind of surprised me that someone else hadn't mentioned it before I did.
0: That's a good point, and, and you're right. I mean, I, I can see that now as you describe it. And you say the photograph that triggered your father to write Mm-mm. the song, Strange Fruit, was not unusual, Hannah Arendt famously spoke of the banality of evil. She said it can overgrow and lay waste the whole world precisely because it spreads like a fungus on the surface. Lynchings, as you say, were as mundane an event as a picnic. The strange fruit of people hanging from trees became postcards. They were accepted as a pastime in Southern society. Of the lynch mob, you say, they knew their actions would be condoned by the local powers. This recent event... It was the president himself who worked the bellows to boost the fire and to make it happen. Like the lynch mobs of old, what did you see among the crowd that indicated that these participants also, quote, appeared to revel in the violence?
1: Well, we all we all know about the selfies and we all know about uh, the, the, the the smiling faces as they broke in. And we all know about the, the sort of almost gleeful ble- beating of the, of the defenders, uh, the feeble defense. And, and, and I want to mention a couple of other things culturally that about, you know, you talk about postcards. Uh, very few people realize, and it's not one of Bob Dylan's more popular songs, but his song Desolation Row mm. starts out with the line, they're selling postcards of the hanging. And that refers to a lynching that took place in the 1930s uh, in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and it's the circus was in town. It was, they hired blacks mm. from Chicago to come up and break down the circus uh, tents. And that infuriated the locals who's wanted those jobs. And so they attacked and they lynched one of the, the people. Uh, and that's, that's, and, and, you know, somebody, since I wrote this piece, uh, someone forwarded me a, uh, a picture of a cartoon that came out in the New Yorker in 1930. Uh, and it's a picture of a crowd of white people sort of staring off into something. There's kind of a dark background and trees and there's sort of a light in the distance. And these people are staring off And they look like a group of rural people dressed in rural clothes. And there's a woman who's got her young daughter on her shoulders. So the young daughter can look out over the crowd and they're all looking in the same direction. Mm. And the caption on the cartoon is the woman saying, this is her first lynching. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it was it was it was it was clearly an attack on the people who were doing it yes. but what a creepy cartoon and to think that you know you it would be portrayed in a cartoon it's 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 very disturbing yeah, so sure. that kind of celebratory kind of attitude uh, and i think that a lot of the people who were engaged in in the Capitol insurrection are very proud of it yeah. and and you know of course, now they're, the, the legal consequences may yeah. have surprised them somewhat uh, and but they still were very proud of their activities and they see it as a big success and of course, yeah. those of us know looking at this say, well, you know this it may they may see it as a success, <laughs> and we see it as a very uh, clear and present ongoing danger.
0: And certainly the the idea of justice. I mean, lynchings Mm -hmm. often were, oh, justice isn't working. The court system isn't Mm. working. We're going to go in there and take care of it ourselves Mm, and do justice. And that's what they did. And -hmm. you talk about local powers condoning lynchings. No, No one could ever forget the face as we watched the law enforcement officer, Derek Chauvin, calmly just doing his job. As he knelt on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes, as if it was perfectly fine. Then there's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Green, who clearly approves the attack, and among the rioters on January sixth were a lot of police and military people. They were, it seems, attempting to normalize and legitimize terror. What feelings did that bring up in you?
1: Well, I mean, I think we we have in this country, and I think you know, this is from before the January 6th uh, insurrection. We also uh, see this in the wake of, as you mentioned, uh, with Derek Chauvin and, and, and George Floyd, uh, that we have a a militarized police force. I mean, you know, first of all, a lot of police, you know, the, the the standing army that we now have and the ongoing military yeah. actions all over the world that we engage in. Uh, produce generation after generation of uh, of ready, you know, pre-trained police officers, and they go from the military. The pipeline goes from the military into the police. And not in all cases, but there's a significant segment, and this includes a significant white nationalist segment yes, that yes. is in endemic to police forces all over the country. And this is hardly surprising because the police, you know, the, the, the original police forces in this country were the, the slave catchers. Um, Mm. and, and then they were the property protectors of, of, and it's the property of white people that was primarily being protected against people of color. So historically you have this cultural, what I would say white settler ideology that feeds into the military and then feeds into uh, the uh, police forces and it's endemic. Uh, nice. And, and we, and, and it's, and it's all over the country. So how do you deal with this is a real problem. I mean, I think, you know, when I, I, I live in, in Western Massachusetts, but I'm not so far from, from New York city and one of my kids lives in Brooklyn and I think New York city is a prime example of that. It seems to me that New York city's mayor, uh, is clearly scared of his own police department.
2: Mm. Um,
1: that, you know, acts as a 30,000 man militarized local militia that holds the city hostage. Um, and, and that's a scary thought. Uh, uh, that's, that's who these wow. folks, a large portion of these people are. And so how do we deal with that? I yeah. mean, that's a real, that's a real question uh, because it's, it's not just a matter of, of police reform. Uh, it's a matter of actually get, regaining civilian control of local police departments. Uh, and and I, I, I think that's going to be an ongoing struggle. Uh, and, and i I'm, i don't think the the long term you know the long term result is uh, is guaranteed no. uh, I, I mean there are clearly there are many encouraging signs yeah. and and you know part of them is are are the the younger generation seems to be rejecting this kind of racism uh, and this kind of white nationalism in in growing numbers. and, and, and But, you know, that, that's a two-edged sword because I think it's not just a matter of prejudice. It's a matter of culture. Uh, and the, the white nationalist faction, the people who are supporting white privilege, uh, they see themselves losing. They see the demographics of the country changing. Yes. And they see their advantage... Uh, being diminished. And they see their way of life coming to an end. And, and, and nothing, nothing is more threatening to people than the idea that their very way of life is under threat. Um, and so you end up with, with people who are willing to commit the most heinous acts of violence and in, in, in their perception, to defend their way of life.
0: And that, that's what, uh, that's what yeah. lynchings were doing, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The same thing. And, uh, it, there's, you know, as a psychologist will tell you that, uh, as you know, uh, hate and anger and rage is based on fear. And
3: mm-hmm. these
0: people are afraid. And it is, in fact, changing. And as you say, they are losing. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Live. I'm having the uh, honor of speaking with Robert Mirapol, whose father wrote Strange Fruit about lynching, that you know the Billie Holiday version. Uh, Our guest Robert Mirapol wrote, the Capitol rioters had a lot in common with the lynch mob, and we're talking about how they are like a lynch mob. And you note that in addition, this is your words, in addition to carrying the Confederate battle flag, some Capitol invaders wore swastikas, Nazi war flags, and Camp Auschwitz insignia. My father, the guy who wrote Strange Fruit, liked the Trump mob at the Capitol. Uh, My father understood, like the Trump mob at the Capitol, that racism and anti-Semitism are intertwined, end of quote. When was Strange Fruit written? Uh, by a father Abe Mirapol and what was going on at that time how did he come to write strange fruit
1: well Abel uh, saw a uh, wrote that he he saw a photograph of a lynching in in, in the early 1930s it's actually a photograph from 1930 uh, um, in Marion Indiana uh, and there's a a picture of black bodies hanging from the trees, and two men, and there's someone pointing at one of the, the bodies, and it's a very famous picture, uh, and uh, it horrified him. Yeah, And so he wrote a poem about it, which he entitled Bitter Fruit, Uh, and he wrote that. It's not clear exactly when he wrote it in 1936 or 1937. Mm. And then it was published, um, in a magazine called the new masses. Uh, Uh and, and, uh, then he said it, he revised the title to, from, from bitter fruit to strange fruit. And he set it to music, uh, and he played it for Billy holiday, uh, at Cafe Society, which was a, uh-huh. a a nightclub located in Greenwich Village in Sheridan Square um, in Greenwich Village in New York City, and run by someone he knew, Barney Josephson. So Abel came down, and Barney uh, was the only integrated nightclub in, in <laughs> New York, and uh-huh. Billy Holiday was performing there. And so he Abel played Abel played a kind of honky tonk piano. And he played Strange Fruit for Billy, and Barney asked her to sing it, and she then sang the song. Uh, and it was it was very, they, they dramatized it. They made it at the end of the set, and they had all service stopped so it would be totally silent.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: all the spots were turned off so that the whole room went black, and then Billy was spotlighted. And she sang Strange Fruit and when, and nobody knew what to make of this song. You have to understand nobody had produced songs like this. Sure. Uh, and when the song was over, there was complete silence. And then one person started ca- clapping and then the whole audience stood up and, and, and there was a, you know, an ongoing uh, reaction. And that, then the song became a sensation. Yeah. Sure um, and so that's, that's how it came about. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's, uh, but the song also had a, a, a history. It was, it was uh Columbia records, which was Billy was a recording artist for Columbia refused to record it. Uh, because, um, uh, it was, uh, well, it was too powerful. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, so she had to go to Commodore Records to record it. And in places that where she sang it, there were riots. In fact, she had to uh, put into her contract that she had right. the right to sing the song uh, because there were many venues that didn't want her to sing the song. And she had to put in her contract, if you're going to hire me, you have to let me sing the song. Uh, so there's... and And then... As we got beyond the 30s and 40s into the 50s, uh, you know, uh, Abel Mirapol was called before the precourse course at the House Un-American Activities Committee mm. and actually asked if the Communist Party paid him to write the song. Um, and, and you know, Abel thought that was rather amusing. Say. Uh, but, but also singer Josh White, who sang the
2: song, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: he was hauled before the house on American activities committee and saying and told not to sing the song because it's damaging America. Uh, you know, and that's sort of what this, this, uh, the film yeah. the United States bill versus Billy holiday is all about. It's about the FBI and the government trying to, to prevent Billy holiday from singing the song and destroying her life and her career yeah. because she refused to stop. So it's, so in the fifties, there was kind of an eclipse of the song, Mm -hmm. Uh, but as you said, at the beginning of your commentary, Terry, strange fruit is back. Um, and it came back in a rather odd way. Um, Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that, uh, it, I think the rebirth of strange fruit really started in, in, in the mid 1990s. It had been sung by various groups, uh, uh, but in the 50s it was not played it was kind of disappeared uh but it it began to gain some traction with the anti apartheid movement uh-huh. uh it became one of the themes of southern trees bear a strange fruit it was about south africa and uh there were, there were, it, was, it was sung, it was part of a, a compilation of music that came out on Amnesty International's 25th birthday. Mm. Uh, and this was in the 1980s, but it then began to gain more currency in 1995 when blues Cassand, singer Cassandra Wilson re recorded it and it got some traction. That was followed by uh, uh, David Margolik's, uh, well, actually, it was followed by Time Magazine. Uh, declaring Strange Fruit the song of the century in, in, in its wow. initial two thousand year 2000 issue wow. and uh, there was then a book written about it by David Morgolik and then a film by Joel Katz in 2001, 2002 and it began, the pot began to boil <laughs> but it really reached full fruition in 2012 is when it, hmm. in the wake of 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 Trade Martin uh-huh. in a kind of weird way, Kanye West cited a line from a Nina's, covered a line from a Nina Simone song. He put it in the background of a rap that he was doing uh for his Yeezus C D. And uh it, it in the background of this rap, which had nothing to do with lynching. Uh, you hear Nina Simone singing, blood on the leaves, blood on the leaves, blood on the leaves, which is one of the lines from Strange Fruit. And this caused an uproar. There were a lot of people, particularly in the African-American community, who were appalled that Kanye West would use Strange Fruit in this manner. And that got more people thinking about it and singing it. And uh, then the Black Lives Matter uh movement adopted it as an anthem. Right. Uh and it it just exploded. It was everywhere. Um and that's so it's had an amazing history and when when, you know, that's that's kind of The history of Strange Fruit, and it it continues to this day. I think probably there are more people who know about Strange Fruit today than knew about it in the 1930s.
0: I'm sure. and, And again, listener, I hope you will pay attention to the lyrics at the end. We're going to play it from the new movie, Again, bringing it back, uh, United States versus Billie Holiday, and she certainly paid a price for her dedication to that song. Oh, she did! Oh, oh yeah. my goodness! What, what? Your father wrote the song "Strange Fruit." What mixed feelings do you think he would have today about its recent explosion of interest?
1: Well, you know, I, without I'm wanting to say spoilers, because it really doesn't tell the whole story of the movie. You know, Billy's kind of triumphant at the end. When she says to the FBI agent, you know, they're going to your grandchildren are going to be singing this song. And that's a real triumph because it says that these 97 words that Abel wrote uh, hmm. might might end up being more powerful in the long run than all the guns of the police. Wow. Uh, and, you know, that's a, the you know, the whole thing, the pen may in the long run turn out to be mightier than the sword. And yeah. that is a tr- that is a triumph. That is. But at the same time, that it's a triumph, it's a tragedy. It's a tra- it's tragic that we still have to sing this song. So I think Abel would reflect. He would be proud uh, that his song is still doing something so powerful, but he would be angry and dismayed that the song was still necessary.
0: And I have to tell you, when I was watching the movie, and the and the government was was after her. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was the government, and then there were the people in the audience. I prefer to think of America as the people in the audience who loved the song. They loved Mm -hmm. the song. That's the real America, not the government that cared to shut them down, and that FBI agent. Uh, It's an interesting movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I can't let you go, Robert Mirapol, without a plug Mm -hmm. for the truly unique organization you founded and directed long after the execution of your birth parents, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, when you were just six years old. Tell us, please, about the mission of the Rosenberg Fund for Children.
1: Yeah, well, that's the part that, you know, I want to share with the audience that while I, that I was adopted by Abel and Ann Mirapol when I was, seven years old after the execution of my birth parents, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, uh, that occurred when I was six in 1953. And, uh, you know, growing up with that kind of a legacy, uh, it's sort of hard to find. Sometimes it's hard to find your place in society. And it, it, it took me, I like to say it took me until I was 43 years old to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And that's when, and and I had, was originally trained as an anthropologist and then went to law school and became an attorney. And I was dissatisfied in some way with everything that I did. And then I had this idea that I would follow, I would sort of carry forward my parents' legacy By transforming the destruction that was visited upon my family into something constructive for the benefit of others. And so I founded the Rosenberg Fund for Children, which provides for the educational and emotional needs of the children of targeted progressive activists in the United States and targeted activist youth. And we we have built this foundation up from nothing. You know, I I was, you know, was not, (laughs) you know, I had I had a decent middle-class American life, uh, but, you know, I didn't have access to millions of dollars, but we gained through the support of thousands of people. We have built up a foundation that now gives away approximately $400,000 a year. and has given away $8 million to help children all over the thousands of children all over the country since 1990, uh, whose parents have been targeted, you know, and, You look at all those people arrested in the Black Lives Matter movement. You look at all Uh, uh, the people detained at the border. You look at all the people protesting. You know, we have four guiding principles that all people have equal worth. People are more important than profits, Society must function within ecologically sustainable limits. And world peace is a necessity. And if you get in trouble promoting any one of those ideas, uh, we are there to help your children With their educational and emotional needs, and that is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. I retired eight years ago, and now my daughter runs the foundation, which is based in Western Massachusetts, and the website's easy to find. It's rfc.org, and you can find out more about it. Again, www.rfc.org.
0: And it's amazing. It's so unique. And I I would recommend the book that you wrote, An Execution in the Family. It's it's an amazing story about how you came up with the idea. Turned uh, something awful into something really good. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Robbie Mirapol. Rfc.org. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I look forward to
1: hearing Andre's music.
3: Southern trees... Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Mm -hmm. Pastoral scene. Of the gallant sounds the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, send of man. sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain together And to rot For the trees To drop Here is a strange And bitter Cry-t-
0: Dancing in the streets is the ideal political state. For a brief moment, the everyday humdrum avenues of commerce are turned into a carnival, a celebration arising from a widespread joy that something really good has just happened, like the end of a war. And when the word came down that it was official, Donald Trump had indeed been ousted. Well, that certainly brought out a lot of dancing in the streets. Now January 6th also transformed some of the streets. For the participants, it was also like a carnival. But instead of celebrating they were mindlessly smashing things. One supposes that for some wild boys and out-of-control young men, insecure about their own masculinity, suddenly feeling like you're the tough guy, dominating and controlling the powers that be, which, in their legitimately carrying out of the laws of the land, may have been confusing and felt oppressive to them, An elitist, making siege on the capital may have felt uniquely invigorating. But, as Shakespeare wrote, kind of full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Such actions may have felt great, but again, I don't think they worked. An old college professor called such juvenile acts masturbatory politics. Now there have been legitimate political uprisings that have included violence throughout Western history, but January 6th was not one of them. In fact, it was a uniquely bizarre world in which the president himself had from the very first day expressed the unrestrained intention to just smash stuff. In the last segment, we talked about January 6 as a modern-day lynch mob. In this segment, we'll look at the riot from a historical perspective and why our guest, history professor Robert A. Schneider, calls January 6, 2021, a day of populist transgression. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Professor Schneider. Pleasure to be here. Robert Schneider is a professor of history at Indiana University, Bloomington, and has published multiple books, including three books on early modern French history, as well as articles on political history and early modern Europe. He served 10 years as editor of the American Historical Review, and he's currently at work on a book about the politics of resentment. Well, again, thanks. Making siege on great political powers is nothing new in Western history. Uh, Robert Schneider starts his essay talking about the most famous siege in the French Revolution. On the face of it, January 6th and the siege of the palace at Versailles might kind of look similar. In 1789, the angry Paris crowd forced its way into the chateau and rummaged around. On January 6th, the crowd forced its way in and rummaged around. Uh, Professor Schneider, you say the rioters, quote, in late 18th century France were more purposeful, more legitimate, and certainly more consequential than the riotous antics of the motley band of diehard Trump supporters. Say more about that, please.
4: Yes, well, sure. Um, The fact is the Paris mob in October, or the crowd in October 5th, 1789, which was composed mostly of women, they they left... um, Paris for Versailles, which took them the more, more, better part of the day, you know, so they really, oh, yeah. they really set out to do something, uh, that, that took quite a bit. And, um, they had a purpose in mind and that was to bring the King back to Paris, uh, there were food shortages yes. in Paris, and the women, especially as the providers of their families, and there were many mainly market women, wanted to have the king there in order, really, in a sense, symbolically, symbolically at least, to uh, provision them. Now, uh, the fact is, as well, in October 1789, we're already in a revolutionary movement. There yeah. have been the taking of the Bastille. Uh in July. There had been the great night of August 4th, which ended uh, feudalism. There was the great fear and uprising of peasants in late summer. Uh, The estates general had transformed itself into a national uh, assembly. Uh, So we're sort of at a moment, a revolutionary moment of dual sovereignty between the king and the national assembly. Mm. Paris is an armed camp. So the women are participating in an already Uh well-established movement that I think in retrospect was clearly revolutionary. Moreover, again, there was this question of food and and provisioning, and they actually said, we're going out to bring back the baker, the baker's wife and the baker's son, meaning the king and the queen and their their son. Uh, And there was, you know, so you really, the comparison uh, is really stretched, and I only made the comparison in terms of this idea of transgression, which Uh I think is an element... Of virtually all contentious uh, actions of a collective nature, the January six uh, insurrectionists—they, you know—they proclaimed they want to stop the steal, but this wasn't really, I think, their true uh, strategy. They wanted to sort of declare their anger and, and their their refusal of the legitimacy of the new government. And and here, I think I, I'd like to make a distinction. I mean, while sure. I think that transgression is part of are potentially part of any sort of collective action, which takes place outside the the bounds of of the normal sort of institutions or hierarchies. Yeah. There's a question of there's a question of uh, of, of there's transgression, but there's also then a uh, purposefulness yes. and uh, ideology and agenda uh, and goals. And the question is when when the transgressive aspects sort of prevails over the ideology or the goals, then you've got a different character, I think, of collective action. And January 6th, I think it was more like pure transgressiveness. (laughs) Let's just break things. Let's just declare our anger uh, at elites, at the establishment, at what's happened, as opposed to uh, we have an agenda, we have a goal, we have a strategy and the like.
0: Yeah, I imagine if you were to ask some of these young men having such a good time smashing things, what it was all about, what they were trying to accomplish... I they, they probably, you know, it was the act itself. It was probably a lot of fun for these kids. I don't know, you know, just going in the streets and smashing things. And Trumpists and other right-wingers have, have tried to not exactly defend the riot, but they've done whatabouts. They cite the, law, the looting and burning that went on uh, at uh, 2020 summer Black Lives Matter protests. While certainly some of that was, as you say, an opportunist grab of free stuff. At least at least then and in the past, some such actions in the 60s in America had targets with a political statement. What about that? What about-ism?
4: Yeah, I mean, what about-ism is a sort of rhetorical ploy, which I wouldn't want to discount it just because of that, because quite frankly, it often forces people to think about their own position uh. and the kinds of actions they might endorse. I mean, we have to own up to legitimate sort of comparisons, and I think they can be revealing. And in retrospect, I think they can make us uh, uh, query exactly the kinds of things we want to authorize or, or license. As I said, um, you know, being transgressive, I think, is is virtually everywhere in these sorts of political actions or collective actions. So whataboutism in, in that sense is legitimate. But uh, this summer, and then when you look at other sorts of of, of potentially or marginally violent actions let's be clear black lives matter it seems to me these um, except in some instances they were largely law-abiding and the people who sort of governed them were were condemned the violence whereas on January 6th the rioters themselves there was no sense of oh we shouldn't do this they were they were all on they were all in so I think there's a distinction there that is very very important moreover there's a question of grievance I mean black lives matter emerge from police brutality that was demonstrable, that you just can't say it was uh, sort of imaginary. These were, in a sense, there was a cause and effect. Uh, and, and so the, I think the legitimate, as far as I'm concerned, the, the grievances were legitimate. Yes. Uh, the anger was, I think, uh, understandable in January six, what was the grievance? You know, it was, it was mystical. It was imaginary. Uh, and, and I think there again, it's the sheer exercise of sort of anger and revenge against elites, against the authorities. That you see in play as opposed to, you know, we are acting on the basis of a, certain, a set of grievances, which, you know, we will connect to our demonstration. That is the demonstration should, it seems to me that demonstration is going to be uh, legitimate. It's got to have, it's got to exhibit at least symbolically some sort of connection to a set of grievances, which, which uh, it exhibits, which it demonstrates. I mean, that's the notion of demonstration. You,
2: yeah.
4: you, de- do, you, you demonstrate something that is wrong that you want corrected. Uh, and here, I do, you know, I think it's pure. It's, it was purely symbolic, in a sense, purely a gesture of anger, of revenge, of resentment.
0: And maybe people were tired of being inside, and you know, just wanted to get out and stretch their legs and smash things. It's so much fun. To spa- you know, you, you, let's face it. You know, young white males, you, you know, they have their their things and uh, naivete. Uh, and can get caught up in, in the fun of uh, smashing things, and certainly in the Black Lives Matter, it, it, it's clearly true that uh, some of the people who did smash things were paid by the far right, and I do think it uh, it's it's true that uh, there's some of the people that uh, went out to make noise and sometimes smash things under the guise of Antifa, that. The far right boosted such things. The fascists historically need a foil. Did they move the cause against the far right? I suspect some of the some of the Antifa people uh, were manipulated uh, and that they may have hurt the cause in their youthful naivete. W- were they another side of populist transgression? What about uh, some of that stuff that uh, was useful to the far right? Well,
4: I have this argument with my, with my older daughter who, um, you know, is very much supportive as I am at Black Lives Matter, but of she course. refuses to uh, she refuses to accept any critique of the violence. And I think it was, you know, in a strategic sense, it's just a, a mistake in yes. a way. I mean, you you, you, you can understand it as the as a sort of a legitimate expression of grievances, but it only sort of uh,
2: yeah.
4: fuels uh, not just the far right, but I'm I'm more concerned about sort of the the middle, ah. to say the suburban voters who were just who were otherwise would have been. Very supportive, as they were in terms of the polls that we have, largely supportive of Black Lives Matter. But when they see, you know, large sections of Seattle being burned to the ground, yeah. uh, this really turns them off. And it's the same thing that happened in 68. And I was uh, uh, a young man at that point, and I remember very, very well, although my sentiments were very very different. But in retrospect, I, I can see that, you know, insofar as, insofar as one can sort of police one's own ranks, mm. it's very, very difficult. Uh, I think these these acts of violence, while well, they they can be seen as symbolically useful, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know. And, and I think here we have to be very clear. I mean, certain kinds of actions which really break the norms can be very useful because they force things on the agenda that otherwise would not be acknowledged. For example, I'm thinking about the WHO, the protests against the WHO uh, a decade or so ab- back which were which were pretty disruptive. I mean what they did is they put the question of globalization on the agenda. And really if you remember back then, this is I think in the 90s you know, even on the left, or the general left, uh, liberals—that is, we weren't willing to acknowledge the effects. I think of globalization and what has become more uh, talked about as neoliberalism, and 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 likewise, Occupy uh, Wall Street—it
2: mm-hmm. was
4: disruptive, it transgressive, but it seems to me that um, it did introduce the notion and uh, force the notion of inequality. And the 99 percent, again, on the sort of the agenda, the consciousness
2: yes. of
4: a certain segment of, of, the, of, the, of the populace. And it, it would not have been otherwise. I mean, you weren't going to find that talked about in The New York Times, <laughs> except for the fact that it was uh, occupied uh-huh. Wall Street that was forcing it into the pages of The Times. So there's, you know, there's, there's I think there is a purposefulness for certain kinds of disruption and even and even uh, even violence. Uh, insofar as certain kind of violence can be didactic, that is to say, I mean, people have looked at the riots, the uprisings in the late '60s yeah. uh, in black communities, have shown that well, wh- who were the, uh, what sort of stores were targeted? Well, they're often stores that were exploitative of the neighbors, right. of the neighborhood, uh, that were owned by outsiders, and so it was a kind of these were these violent actions, as regrettable as I think they ultimately should be seen as, nevertheless were didactic in the sense they sort of pointed out aspects of of, of local exploitation which otherwise would not have been acknowledged. So I think we have to be very careful in how we sort of analyze and parse violence as a, as opposed to just seeing it as a, you know either either just totally legitimate or totally uh,
0: wrong, you know certainly, and disrupting is is very important for sure. We're approaching fifty years on the uh, May Day demonstrations in washington d c mm-hmm. purposely against the war in Vietnam, stop the center of the war making machine. And you stopped the war for at least a day. It didn't work, but it was symbolic. And a lot of these things are. And I I was there. I was there, too. (laughs) We we were in a similar jail that I was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are keeping democracy alive. We're talking about the January 6th, 2021, uh, a day of populist transgression with our guest history professor, Robert A. Schneider. And we all saw the rioter January 6th with his feet on the desk of Speaker Pelosi. And it reminded us of, uh, some of us anyway, of college students who invaded the offices of deans or presidents of universities way back then. As a college student at the time, I was not comfortable with those images. I thought, what is this accomplishing here? It looks kind of juvenile. What do you, Why do you say both examples are, are more thrilling than purposeful, less productive than merely exciting?
4: Well, here I have to come clean. Uh, I wasn't necessarily one of the students with my feet up on the desk, yeah. but, but I was one of those students I was one of those students who occupied the buildings. I was, in fact, a member of SDS at, uh, uh-huh. yep. in, in, at Yale, and uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm sort of embarrassed by m- many of my actions—not necessarily my beliefs—but right. um, I think we attacked we attacked the wrong institution. The university, I think, was as, as complicit uh, as we claimed it was. There were other institutions that were much more complicit in the war making. Nevertheless, uh, that's where we were, and I think, I, again, I I, I think. Uh, not to deny the legitimacy of various actions, including occupying buildings against the war, but I think uh, then too uh, the the thrill of breaking things, of 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 violating space, of of entering uh, of areas that are considered to be off limits, uh-huh. uh, sacred. There's something that is kind of thrilling and exciting and. Uh, symbolically sort of fulfilling in a way uh, without being purposeful and i think that's that's true for virtually any sort of of action which is disruptive or potentially violent or contentious in a certain way it's sort of a, it's a, it's an attempt to, to unmask power uh, uh-huh. to demystify power which is again often very useful sure. you know it can be seen it, it can be just purely mischievous and gratuitous as i think it often was uh, you know, but it also can serve a kind of purpose insofar yes. as the mystification of power is often, uh, a license for abuse. Uh, mm. uh, it, it, it can be again, purposeful. So again, I think, I think it's, it's at least in retrospect, um, understanding these things as, as, as having different valences. I mean, uh, uh that is the, the, the you know understanding that tr- transgression can be seen in retrospect as purely gratuitous as, yeah. as, I, as i as i say has to be seen as uh a kind of legitimate kind of conclusion <laughs> you know
2: um
4: nevertheless it doesn't that doesn't deny the legitimacy of the kind of movement itself uh, and often of course in in an age where the media focuses upon symbols and images, it's very easy yeah. uh, to, to take an image like that of a student with his feet up on the desk and say, oh, look at these jerks. They're just kids. You know, they're just acting silly or stupid or disruptive or, or irreverent or whatever, and, and uh, discounting the movement because of that, uh, which is really unfair. But on the other hand, yeah. if you're in a movement, you have, to t- you have to sort of anticipate in advance, well, how are things going to be seen and manipulate oh, it, yes.
2: uh,
4: as images. You can't just say it, that's <laughs> not fair to take that image and uh, use it as a label for the whole movement. You have to if you're savvy at least and I think some leaders are, some leaders aren't. Right. Um, you have to be savvy and anticipate the ways in which your your images uh, and what you what you what it seems like you're doing as opposed to what you're really doing can be taken to, precisely to discount or malign you. And yeah. and you can't just say oh, it's not fair, they're, they're, just, they're just looking, it's just a minority of us who are doing that, or that, that, that really wasn't consequential, that was just a minor thing. You can't just, you, I think, if you're, at least you're savvy... And you
0: know, yeah, not
4: often often aren't <laughs> right. Uh, you have you have to sort of own up to that likelihood.
0: Well, it reminds me of—I I have to say—I was very much, of course, against the war in Vietnam too. And I remember when there was the bombing of uh, uh, University of Madison, and right uh, and the Weather yeah, it, Underground people were killed. Yeah, here. that really, really hurt the cause. I think they—I don't think they had. Any idea that that would be the end that, that that really stopped the movement because it kept escalating. But people felt like, oh my goodness, I can't do that. I'm like, what can I do? And it was really counterproductive because it scared people. It did scare people. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. fear and reassurance, Lord knows, are motivating factors in politics, uh, for sure. And uh, mm-hmm. what struck one of the things that that struck me as unique about January six, the role of. Our president, he was not only not the target of the invasion force, he was behind it, he was cheering it, he loved it. They were doing it for him. As you say, his very mode of self-presentation said, I'm going to violate every standard, every precedent, every expectation for a president. And you say that in Trump and his zealous acolytes, transgression is not a means, but merely an end. In what ways does that make January 6th truly unique? Is it is it like the French Revolution upside down? I mean, there was no high-minded political goal. Could it be that January 6th and the Trump presidency were largely just about simply breaking things? Well, I, I think
4: I think there's something about Trump's mode of presentation which sort of announced that from the very beginning, that he was going to, you know, well, let's say shake things up or depart from the, the, the norms, which was very appealing for those who were who were totally alienated from, uh, you know, the political system and the political parties. Insofar as he did draw in a lot of voters who who hadn't voted yeah. or hadn't voted Republican, even voters who who had voted for Obama. And so, in that sense, it was a very savvy kind of political strategy. Uh, And it was, I think, essentially a kind of – he's not a populist because his ideology is not populist at all, but I think his style is populist. And again, I think to look for analogies, I mean, if if people see people like Perón – or, you know, weirdly, I was thinking of Mao in the Cultural Revolution. That is to say, Mao uh, sort of leading uh, a movement, I mean, much more consequential and, and, uh, and enduring than anything we, we see here. I mean, truly epic making. But the Cultural Revolution was sort of led from the top. and Mao uh-huh. um, uh, inciting, you know, the masses to revolt against, their, against his own government. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, Trump, in a very minor, uh, sort of comical way, sort of embodies that sense of the leader, the, author- the potentially or wannabe authoritarian leader, sort of uh, licensing the masses, going over the head of his own party, of his own institution, uh, in order to mobilize them in- for his own purposes. And I think. Um, there's something, there's something in the style of Trump that sort of speaks to that sort of weirdly com- weird combination of authoritarianism and, and populism in, insofar as he, he unleashes a sense of revenge, of resentment. Uh, that we're going to just smash things because, you know, we're pissed off. We've been excluded. <laughs> we've been ignored. Right. Uh, we've been we've been looked down upon this. This sentiment yeah, of being looked yeah. down upon is I think is very, very powerful. I mean, even Mitch McConnell, not even but Mitch McConnell, was sort of, you know, one of the chief figures in all this in the, his campaign for Senate just in the last election. One of the things he said is, you know, these people and, you know, he meant. Um, the, the, the liberals, basically, yeah, they Pelosi. look they look down upon you. You're the right. flyover country. He's talking to, and yes. that sense of being looked down upon, I think, is is a powerful sentiment. Is. among many of our fellow uh, citizens here. It, uh, and so, I mean, what is how do you, how do you how do you uh, how do you address that in any political sense? You know, being looked down upon. There's virtually nothing you can do. To assuage someone who feels looked down upon—it's a very sort of interpersonal mm. sort of sentiment—and yet it's been, I think, insofar as it's a kind of legitimate expression of widespread sentiments, it's very powerful as part of our, uh, you know, the political culture I- at the present, which I think really uh, sp- is connected to this populist sentiment of of discontent, of a of grievance. Of being excluded, of being looked down upon, of being mm. surpassed by by others you know illegitimately, and here I think January sixth, by this you know relatively small group of guys, right. expressed that sense of you know we're getting back, and how are we going to get back we're just going to we're just going to do something that hasn't been done before we're just going to break into the congress uh and here you know he, it's, a, it's almost kind of existential statement I you mm. edify it that way, but here we are. You know, here, here we are. Right. That's it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, they were they were looked down on, and and let's face it, at least in my opinion, the elitism that was projected by our twenty sixteen candidate for president, Hillary Clinton. Of course, that made people angry. They they were looked down on, and that used to be, as you know, historically, uh, the the Midwest used to be real populist, uh, left leaning territory, and we, as Democrats, as liberals, have to. G- Check it out, why they were angry, why they felt that they were being looked down on. I think it's important to do that. I don't see the established Democratic Party uh, doing that now, the, uh, the liberal elite, as it were. I mean, let's face it, there's some of that there. Well, this, this unfocused contempt for established elites at the heart of January 6th and today's really powerful far right, you say— that they may one day regret the ugly forces they have unleashed. Does the Republican Party? Do you think that they see that January sixth hurt them? And why do you say they one day may regret the ugly forces they have unleashed?
4: Well, I I, I have to believe that uh, when we're talking about sort of the 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 established elites of the Republican Party. And those who are invested in the some sort of hierarchy and order uh, and 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 property after all and the privileges of the elite they have to be they have to be worried or they or they should be worried about as they say the forces that are out there that have been that have served them in many respects insofar as uh, they have tapped into these grievances and has been a very powerful force in the sustained power of the Republican Party that, uh, like often in history, uh, and indeed, I mean, again, I get to be careful of analogies, but certainly in the early 30s, uh, there were people in the business and the industrial world in Germany Mm -hmm. uh, who saw the Nazis and the Nazi movement as sort of things they could sort of play with i mean this movement will help them against the communists which after all was a force in germany at the time and you know they'll control them they'll control this guy hitler he's just a clown we can we Mm -hmm. can sort of you know channel his energies and look what happened you know Mm -hmm. and uh, i'm not saying that that is our that is our fate but when you when you open it's a pandora's box when you open the gates to and you invite and encourage this kind of uh populist and popular sentiment and sort of seem to wink at this kind of uh, r- routinized transgressiveness, uh, you cannot possibly predict where it's going to go. Yeah. And so I think it may be the case, at least among among many of them. They, I mean, I think many of them do regret it today still or yet. Uh, but many of them have uh, yet to see the consequences. The problem is when you talk about the Republican party, what are you talking about? Right. It's probably monolithic yeah. and it's it's more divided than other and I think even for those uh, you know uh, Josh Hawley or uh, people like that I think they're probably even of uh, despite their public presentation they're probably of two minds themselves. I wonder you know mm. in the middle of the night whether they don't wake up and wonder well what's what really is going on I mean clearly there's a there's a high degree of opportunism which I think is based upon the assumption that we can control things, you know, that, uh, uh, but, uh, but they, I don't think, uh, you know, no one can predict where these forces are going to, what sort of turn they're going to take, uh, and uh, they can easily turn around and end up sort of mastering the masters, yes. you know, as, as 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 often has happened. You know, and in and in retrospect, people will, you know, the assessment will be, oh, we shouldn't have, or we didn't, we that's not what we wanted. You know,
2: well, which is
4: always the excuse. We did, we didn't want that. Well, uh... you know, that's the problem with. Politics happens in real time, and uh, you know you you can't you can't use that excuse retrospectively uh, if you haven't because it's usually a consequence of not playing things out in time. <laughs> Thinking, well, what what will be the consequences? Which is often what pol- political leaders certainly don't do because they're in the moment. You know they're the whole point is to is to keep power i mean it's
0: machiavellian Uh, well machiavelli was certainly right never been proved wrong and you know the energy was there trump intentionally lit the spark and now where does it go boy who knows can they possibly get control over it fascinating discussion thank you so much for being with us today if people want to follow your work uh what can you recommend
4: well, I have a work in progress, which is which is called "The Return of Resentment." It's really about the concept and and the reality of resentment from really the 18th century, but it focuses more on the 20th century and a uh, 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 present times, 20th and 21st century. And I'm really interested in how this notion of resentment is being deployed increasingly today today <sighs> to sort of analyze the present situation in ways that it hadn't been before. I mean, I think it's 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 been uh, a concept which has been floating about, but I think we—if you look at the press and just sort of keep your eye out for uh, for it—you see that resentment is evoked time yeah. and time again. And my one of my questions is, well, what does it really mean? How how meaningful is it? So I see resentment yeah. and populism, in fact, quite quite linked. It's forthcoming.
0: Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Please okay. let me know when it's out okay. there, and uh, we'll see if we can uh, talk about it then. Thanks so much for being okay. with us, uh, Professor okay. Schneider.
4: Thank you. <laughs>
2: Wildest dreams Wildest dreams Wildest dreams